Welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded in Copenhagen during the 2017 Innovation Roundtable Summit, where our colleague Leonard sat down with Tim Minshall, professor at the University of Cambridge. They discuss how large corporations can engage in open innovation with nimble startups and the associated challenges. Based on his academic research and experience from a university incubator, Minchel shares his best practices, including important criteria for partner selection, how to align expectations, and how to perform test projects. Tim, it's a pleasure to have you here in my little uh, interview studio backstage at the Innovation Roundtable Summit. And uh, it was also, thank you once again for, for uh, hosting those two labs and, and pulling them off uh, today. My pleasure. Um, maybe we can start the interview with you just briefly explaining who you are, what academic institution you work uh, at, and what kind of your research focus is at the moment. Sure. So I'm from the uh, Institute for Manufacturing, which is part of Cambridge University Engineering Department, and I'm the uh, Professor of Innovation. And my background is that I used to work for an organisation called St John's Innovation Centre in Cambridge, which is a, an incubator of, of high-tech firms. And while I was there... I learned of the, the challenges facing startups in all manifestations, but particularly when they tried to collaborate with larger organizations, which at one level made absolute logical sense. You're a startup, you've got a great piece of technology, perhaps not with the commercial experience and perhaps not the, the route to market that larger firms have got and not the assets, certainly, that larger firms have got. So it made sense to say, well, why don't these work together? Now, I didn't know that was called open innovation, but I learned afterwards it was. But I got really intrigued by looking at how difficult these companies found it. I thought, well, is it that the startups just aren't doing this right? Is it that they're not? What's the problem there? So I joined the university as an academic to explore this in more detail. So I spoke then to a lot of larger companies, and they found it equally frustrating. They wanted to work with startups. They wanted to innovate in an open way. But somehow the mechanisms just stuff got in the way. So I was intrigued as to what that stuff was. So my first research was on um, how do, uh, it's the elephant and mouse problem, as we like to call it, where you get very large organizations trying to collaborate with very small organizations, kind of this extreme asymmetry. And I thought it would be a problem of, I don't know, contracting or something very technical. But we did a load of interviews and a load of workshops and found out that it's something much more human. It's, there are some technical challenges that you need to be aware of and to overcome. There's also a whole load of people-based problems, people not getting on with each other, people not understanding what the other's really trying to do. So quite basic things, but actually very difficult to solve because it's a system problem. It's not just a little problem you're trying to fix between two parties. It's much more complicated than that. So did that for a while and then got very interested in how big companies were dealing with this and, trying, and kind of shifted more to the, the big company end of the telescope which again revealed a whole load of other problems, that innovation doesn't sit in isolation as an innovation activity. It's part of a whole complex world of business, particularly for technology firms, where things are changing very fast. But for a lot of this, we were not interested in specific technologies. We just said it's about a technology. It's a technology startup and it's a technology-intensive large firm. Fine. But then we got intrigued by the idea that different technologies make cause different problems for open innovation. So, for example, if you're in the world of pharmaceuticals, where there's a very you know, high-ticket investment required to make anything work, but there's also a very, very structured approach to doing it. You know, you're following the regulatory pipeline. You can't deviate from that. So there's a very structured innovation process, which in a way makes 
innovate, open innovation a little easier because everybody knows what needs to happen at what stage. It's still difficult, but at least it's structured. Whereas other areas, completely freeform. Or it's uh, the clock speed issue, that if you're a startup company in software trying to work with the aerospace industry, you've got clock uh, cycles of you know just a few months to go from idea to product, or even weeks in some cases, versus aerospace, where you've got massive, not only development cycles, but product life cycles. You know, aircraft, 20, 30, 40 years of life, versus a bit of software that you know, may only last a few couple of years. So all those issues came about. So we got interested in the technology, and we got very interested in production processes. We've got a new way of making things. So that's a real a knack of choosing really difficult, awkward problems. So it's where small companies working with big companies, that's one massive problem. You've got a production process, which is inherently very difficult to get people to adopt because there's always an existing process. You've then got the fact that the new production processes we looked at, things like 3D printing, are not yet stabilised. They're emerging technologies, and the market is still evolving, and the companies that are dealing with them, it's, you've, oh my goodness, you've got a technical evolution problem, you've got a market evolution problem, and you've got an organisational evolution problem. So you've got this triple scale-up problem. How do you deal with that? So what seemed to be a nice simple project between one company with an idea and one company with a need has become this hideous mess of complexity because of the nature of the technologies. Then the final stage we've got to, sorry, it's not hopefully the final one, it's the next stage, is around the fact that the bit that we want to focus on is the people. Because all the way through this, you can say, well, these things are always going to be difficult, and we've no idea the next big thing that's going to come along and be even more difficult in ways we can't imagine. So isn't it about making sure we've got the people who can not only deal with change today, but have the capabilities to deal with whatever change may come in the future? So we're focusing now, my research group is now focusing specifically on skills for innovation. How do you develop, how do you acquire these skills as an organisation, as a region, as a nation, but also right down to an individual project? So this involves us getting involved with innovation activities, not just at the corporate level, not just at university level, not just at um, uh, technical college level or further education level, but right back through the secondary school system and even the primary school system. Where do these behaviours of innovators come from? Does our, innovate, does our education system actually stifle these things? What are we doing wrong? So quite a big agenda, but that's what I want to focus on. Now let me ask you a bit of the broader picture of innovation also historically. If you look a bit back, and in your, in your, um, since you have been looking into innovation, what do you see today and also your practical work with, with organizations? What do you see in the research and also the practical work what development do you see? What changes have, have happened? And, and what, do you, what are the reasons for them? So I think a lot of it comes down to speed of change. There's a, a famous graph that was published a few years ago, which is the uh, speed of adoption of different technologies. And I think they, it, was, it was for the United States, and it was, uh, I don't know, 20 technologies, and how long it took those technologies to go from 0% adoption, I no one had them, to something approaching 100%. And you can see things like the car and the radio. It took decades to get even above 50% adoption. And, you know, getting close to 100 now, of course, or radio perhaps not, it never will be. Um, but so you see these long curves being drawn out. And then you see as you move forward from the 1900s where these cars arrived and radios arrived to the arrival of the personal computer. 
rather than the mobile phone, rather than the internet. And you just see this incredible compression from 0% adoption to 90 plus percent adoption in a very small number of years. So things are getting much quicker. Things, change is happening faster, and that's one thing. The next issue is that technologies are much more systemic. Sorry, products and are much more systemic in that it's not just we're going to make this glass and we know how to make glass technologies, we know how to put it into this form, we know how to get it to the customer. That's still a difficult business challenge, I'm sure. But when it's something like um, autonomous vehicles, that's not a single technology. That's a bundle of hundreds of technologies that all have to work together. And it's not just producing a single system. It's the system of selling and use that, and production that have to be developed as well. So these very, very literally complex, as well as complicated, and systemic challenges that we're facing now means that innovation, we, we've, just got to be, we've just got to be much better at it. Because some of the old systems where you've got a simple product where there's a new material, we can do this thing with it, it can be adopted in this product, that's challenging enough. But when you've got this multiple, multiple layers coming together, all happens, so it's happening quicker and it's more complicated I think those are the two big challenges we're facing at the moment, and all companies are facing that now. Let me ask you about open innovation, and, and why do you think open innovation as a, also as a practice um, kind of uh, was you know, coming up so, I would say, late, or at least in the last 20 years? Uh, why, what is the reason for, for that open innovation approach coming up that late, and why ha hasn't been that, or haven't been that, any um, open innovation in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and why is that now such a big topic and such a big vehicle uh, of doing innovation for large companies? Sure. So I think you're absolutely right that in open innovation is much more prevalent and visible now, but actually I think it's been happening for a very long time. It just didn't have a label. So one thing uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Letizia Mortara, has been looking at is there is the moment where open innovation as a concept and the words open and innovation were put together and the open innovation model was communicated, developed by Professor Henry Chesborough from Berkeley, that moment triggered a change in behaviours. So, but it wasn't that it, up until 2003 there was no open innovation and then it happened. There had been collaboration in innovation for literally centuries. People have looked back and seen examples of it happening way, way, way back. But it definitely was uh, accelerated by the, the communication, the definition of that model, and the diffusion of that model. It's a nice example of an innovation in itself. You know, that open innovation is an innovation. And so that needs to go through the same processes of, of development, diffusion, all those good things. Um, I think, though, that the uh, points we raised earlier about complexity means that if, if you're dealing with systemic issues, such as rapidly changing overlapping markets, multiple technologies from lots of different sectors, no one single company can do that. I think that's the nature of innovation changing has, has, is amplifying the need for open innovation. But to your point about um, uh, what changed to make it happen, aside from the, the publication of that model, it's what Henry Chesborough was saying, that there were corporate labs who were very efficient, very effective at what they did, so Bell Labs, IBM Labs, all these great um, laboratories, driving forward innovation inside companies in a very structured way, in a very effective way at certain uh, times in history. But again, the nature of the technology changed. It became much more open. You went from closed systems to open systems, so it was much harder for companies to keep everything in-house. The emergence of um, and massive growth of the venture capital market meant that in the past, 
only big companies could afford to do the innovation thing, for massive investment in innovation. Smaller companies just couldn't do it. And if they did want to do it, who would fund it? Was with the emergence of the venture capital market, then there is the ability to create ideas outside of large firms and stimulate new ideas, which you can then benefit from. So, and then another factor was the changing role of universities. The universities traditionally have the, the two missions of, of education and research, but in many countries, triggered by particular activities in the US, this concept of the third mission arrived, in the, particularly in the 90s, saying, yes, we expect you to be excellent at research and to be very, very effective at teaching, but also there's a sort of sense of, and the impact of your research, you must get involved in ensuring that this knowledge is used. Not everybody agreed with that, and it's a, it's a challenging area. It's, it always was and always will be. That provided another mechanism for open innovation, because then companies could found it easier, as universities developed these frameworks and capabilities and processes, to allow them to uh, engage with companies, not just because they said, oh, we've got to do this other thing now. It's If you do it well, you can do better research. You can support your students more effectively by getting, you know... Uh, uh, leading-edge practice embedded in your education activities. You get to see real, really interesting challenges being posed by industry, and you improve the, the chance of that, tech, that um, research being deployed to solve problems, which is actually what academics love. They want to see their ideas being used. So it's not about universities suddenly became generators of spin-outs and you know, lecturers turning up and professors turning up in their Ferraris. That's not it. It's the fact that people were given a mechanism to ensure their ideas got used. So I think it's those three things. It's the nature of changing technology. I think it's the emergence of venture capital markets in particular. And it's the changing role of universities in the uh, innovation system that made a big, that have come together to push open innovation forward and to accelerate open innovation. What do you, what do you see or what have you seen in your research um, in terms of what criteria companies should use or, or could use uh, to select outside partners to engage in that open innovation framework? That's a, a really good uh, and challenging question. So from the, the labs we were just running, we can see this is a major issue. So there's, there's a lot of mechanistic things you can do to find people outside you want to work with. And that's difficult, but not as difficult as actually getting the right idea selected and setting up the partnership and ensuring that the partnership is fruitful and leads to a useful outcome. There's a whole series of challenges around that. And what we see is that the companies, that, it's a maturity thing. Companies have got better at doing this. Perhaps in the past, they'd just go, right, we need um, to work with startups. How do we work with startups? Let's just go and find startups. We'll just go to Silicon Valley and we'll just, you know, get, have a, a pitching session and we'll just pick the one we want to work with. That can work. But actually what you want to do is build up trust, build up a presence so people want to come to you and go, oh, we hear about your company. We, we, we think we've got something for you. There's then a whole series of mechanistic issues to do with how you engage with those companies. So it can be things such as um, some very, very practical stuff. So you want to work with that startup. That startup is not one of your list of approved suppliers. So if you go through your normal procurement routes, it can just grind to a halt because they don't fit the profile of what's required. So why not? do lots of easy win projects where you say, well, we think we might want to work with you. So why don't you just do this piece of a simple consulting project where we'll specify something, you produce a report on this, on this topic, we pay you for it, you're now in our systems, we kind of got to know you a little bit. Now, let's have a chat about what we could do together that's completely different. So you do lots of little things to uh, kind of break that initial barrier. 
Because there's nothing more frustrating for a startup than people having you know, beauty parades and networking events where they turn up and it's just blah, blah, blah. Nothing happens. They go, this is a waste of my time. The other thing is having uh, a sensible way of thinking about how you monitor and measure the effectiveness of these relationships because you can charge off to Silicon Valley and come back with a briefcase full of really nice you know, slide decks on your laptop from all these great startups. And you go, so what are we going to do? And you go, oh, we'll, we'll do a project and we'll develop a proof of concept. And you go, oh, I'm very excited about that. And the proof of concept is never taken forward. That may be a good reason. You, if you've decided, yes, we're not going to do that, for good reason, for these reasons, that's fine. It's when it just, no one knows quite what to do with it. It's, it's understanding how it fits into the whole business system. So I have a, uh, a student, uh, she's off in Silicon Valley at the moment, looking at the way in which one particular sector from... Uh, uh, particularly European companies, are setting up innovation activities in Silicon Valley. And she taught me the phrase um, innovation theatre, which is big companies saying, we want some of that open innovation magic from Silicon Valley, so we'll send our executives out there and they'll have a wonderful, they'll go and visit Google and Facebook and all these companies, and it'll be a great time, and they'll, they'll get the sense of what it could be. And they'll go back and carry on exactly as before. There's no mechanism for change. It is useful. It's raising awareness, but it's not actually leading to new products and services being developed, changing what you do and doing it better. And that's a thing I think needs a lot more work. What would you say? I mean, now you've experienced as a, um, yourself engaging with, uh, with corporates and with large companies in your research. Um, what would you say are the, some of the challenges? You've mentioned the startup challenges of large companies and, and small uh, startups um, engaging with each other. But what are some of the challenges of uh, other, you know, potential partners within innovation? So uh, I guess the startups one is, is a very particular and challenging one, but you're absolutely right. It's way broader than that. And so the university one, I think, is, is a very tricky one because universities are, can be extremely valuable partners for innovation, but it's got to be understood what they can and can't do. So uh, an interesting comment from one of the delegates earlier on where she was saying, look, we, we approach university to have a problem solved and we then face, in an open innovation way, a number of interesting challenges, <laughs> putting it politely. So on the one hand, we go along and they'll say, yep, no problem at all, we can solve that for you, but it's going to take two years. Okay, well, we kind of wanted it in three months. It's, oh, no, 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 research takes longer than that. The other problem they said was, they start off and they say, okay, we'll take two years. But in that two-year period, the academic goes off in all sorts of other directions. Very interesting, not solving the problem. So the discussion we had is saying, well, universities are very good at providing a different way of thinking. They can do the short-term problem solving, but you need to set up a contract to do that short-term problem solving with the mutual understanding of that's what it's about. We need a report on this by next Tuesday. Fine, that's not really research. That's kind of getting existing knowledge together and writing it down in an accessible format. Fine, they can do that if they know that's what's wanted. If you want to do a, we want to understand better how to manage open innovation scouting. Fine, well, we can do research on that. That would take a couple of years to do, probably to do it well. That's fine. But if you want universities to do the things that they kind of love doing, which is, can you help us ask, work out what the questions are we should be asking? What are the things we don't even know what's, what could be a threat to our business? Can you help us do that? So that's a different type of research altogether. And you, so you, it's about managing expectations. Yep, solve that problem now. 
versus that's an interesting thing, we're going to explore it for a couple of years and come back with some answers, versus let's just go on a journey together and see where it leads. And the smart companies are the ones that recognise those are three very different things, equally valuable, but different, require different mechanisms. And for a lot of academics, if, they wanted, if they're going to be doing the short-term solve that problem, that may be less interesting for them. They might like the money, but they might go, well, it's not really that challenging and all that stimulating. They'd love to do the one over there, but they recognise that people are unlikely to pay them to do the wacky blue-sky thinking. So it's, again, it's about managing expectations. And it comes back to this issue that, um, again, I, my colleague Letizia Motara had looked at with, so what are the skills required for open innovation? And there was this whole uh, uh, discussion that, that she and I and a lot of companies had around it's that ability to understand the other perspective. So you're, look, you're putting yourself in their shoes and going, what do they really want? Not just, we want this thing, can you provide it? It's, what do you want, what do we want? And always thinking, as the delegate was saying in the last lab, it's about focusing on the, it sounds a bit trite, but focusing on the win-win right from the beginning. Not just, what's the thing we want? And let's, let's sort of find the easiest way to get it. It's saying, what do we want? What do they want? Can we make that work for both of us? And do we understand really what they want? And do they understand what we really want? And are we willing to be flexible around that? So it's some very basic, basic skills that need to be uh, taught to help companies and universities and startups. And to your point about other partners, people in your supply chain, even competitors, people from other sectors you might want to work with, the same generic rules apply. There's some good practices that need to be diffused there. Although I do think it does vary by sector to an extent. As we said earlier, the issue of if you're doing open innovation in aerospace or pharmaceuticals, it's very different from fast-moving consumer goods or software. Let me ask you about the startups again. That's really where you looked into deeply um, in the last couple of years. And there are different ways of collaborating with the startups. You can invest in them. Uh, you can collaborate uh, with them together. They can be, you can be the first uh, customer and, and they will be kind of have their be a supplier in, in your what 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 are, could be some of the considerations of what route to go and and of course it can also be a mix of, of those different uh, ways of engaging with the startups as a corporate it's a it's a really good point because the assumption sometimes is that um, there's kind of one mechanism or that really what all startups want is to be bought so all your the only reason you're collaborating with a big company is because you might want to be bought that that's not that true. It might be an outcome, but it's only one possible outcome and one possible motive. So sometimes it's just we as a startup need cash. We want money in our business and we want to work with a good partner who will help us develop our commercial skills and provide us with money so we can develop our, our offering. So there's an interesting uh, comment was made by someone earlier about um, if you approach a big company and it's all about transactional selling, that can be great. So you just say, well, we've really worked out that what big company wants is to, we're going to align with exactly their processes and their systems, and the way to do that is to be a supplier. And you go down the route of being a supplier, and you focus on, yep, we can do all the sales pitch, we can understand how procurement works, we will fulfill all your requirements, and we will do that very well for you. That will lead to cash for you, it's good, but it won't really make you an innovation partner for them. So they'll just go, we're just a supplier. So it's finding, again, to this point about what's the actual thing that you're each trying to do. In understanding those, those, and then picking the right mechanisms to do that. And then there's an issue of the fact that you don't just pick one and that's it. It may evolve over time. 
So we have a colleague, uh, David Connell, back in Cambridge, who looked at this idea of setting up collaborations around a consulting project as a way of understanding commercial imperatives and the, the dynamics in a market, such that you can then do something perhaps more based around a product and product development. So you do these different types of commercial activity at different stages to build up the partnership to a point where you go, OK, now we can do something quite different together. But just jumping straight in to say, let's do a high-risk, disruptive innovation project together, ah, you know, it's probably going to end in failure. But if you've built up a bit of trust, a bit of awareness in a very mechanistic way, that gets you to a point where you go, OK, we can now work with you. Let me ask about so, so where it often uh, gets delayed or is difficulties approach for both of the parties actually it is when it when IP is put on the table and and who owns IP that is jointly developed and so on. You were talking about light contracts and and making it easier for for startups kind of to engage yep. without being caught in all of those compliance regulations uh, those typical in, in large companies. Um, maybe you can elaborate a bit on that and, and how those um, um, you know, large corporations can make those light contracts or easier um, regulations possible without compromising uh, on, on the reasons those regulations and, and compliance rules have been developed in the first place. Okay, well, I think there's, there's, there may be three bits there. One is uh, there's a context issue. So if you're working in the world of pharmaceuticals, You know, IP is massive. You know, you really, really got to understand that. So maybe just park that one first. The other two is, is different things there between IP issues and contracting issues. So yes, you're quite right. They, they they all merge together, but I think maybe worth talking about them separately first. With the IP issues, it's often regarded as oh, we don't want to collaborate because or we, we as a startup don't want to work with this big firm because of IP will be difficult. Or the startup goes, ah, oh, we don't want to talk to them because IP will be difficult. I think it's completely, it can be, it's completely the wrong way to look at IP, though. IP is just the currency of collaboration. And I don't mean there's a patent or there isn't a patent and are we arguing about what we can do and not do. The intellectual property can just be the idea. It can be the knowledge. It's just that we're coming together because we believe that the two of us have something that would be more valuable if it were together. We believe in synergy. So bringing together of that knowledge and the currency of that is intellectual property. So that's all it is. So it's actually the enabler of open innovation, not the barrier to it. The way it's done can be a barrier, but fundamentally it is not the barrier. It's the enabler. It's the language. It's the currency of open innovation. So I think that's very important um, to emphasize that so strongly. Mm -hmm. The other uh, issue then is how you implement that, how you manage the contract and all the technical issues around how you do that. Ah, yeah, you do need extremely high levels of commercial awareness. So it's not just it's an IP matter. It's a commercial matter. It's about the way in which um, intellectual property sits into a commercial context. So we work with some very good lawyers, and they, the, they really talk about this. So when someone comes along and says, you know, this is in breach of contract, it's abusing our IP, blah, 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 you know, or, and we want to collaborate with this firm instead, they won't just go, well, how can we sign a good deal? It's what do you want to achieve? What's the, what do you really want? Is it that you want to make a lot of money quickly? Okay, we can do certain things then. If it is we want to build a partnership to get our product to market, fine, we'll do things a little differently. So you need lawyers and IPA uh, patent agents who really get that side to it. They know the technical things that need to be done, but they can only, they've got to be able to choose the right technical thing to do at the right time, depending on 
industry, the personalities involved, the, the, the aims and ambitions they have, the nature of the organisations, timing, all sorts of things. So there's a context bit, there's an IP bit being it's very positive, and then moving into this contractual bit, it's got to be understood in the context of what you're trying to achieve. That it's not just a what's good practice for writing contracts, it's about what you're really trying to achieve. So again, a point that was raised earlier, which was very, very helpful, was around if you allow negotiations around the details of the contract to come in too early, you stifle the discussion and you end up producing a very heavyweight solution to the wrong problem. It's never going to solve the problem you want to solve. So a nice idea is just to have the very simple, basic kind of framework agreement, saying, OK, we... We're not quite sure how this is going to work, but this is the boundaries of what we're going to do. We all agree that we're going to stay in this space here. If anything goes outside that, we'll deal with it separately. But this is broadly where we're going to be. Right, now we can talk to each other and discuss what's going to happen and start working together. As you work together, issues arise. New IP is generated. But you need to have got a mechanism to say, we know that when this happens, we're ready for it. And we know how we're going to deal with it. So you don't just deal with it as a crisis at the last minute. And another organisation we worked with put it very nicely. They said it's, it's about it's trust and contracts. Those are the two things you've got to work with. And really, trust is the thing you're trying to build. That's what you want. That's what makes things work. People getting on with each other and trusting each other. However, you need the safety net of the contract. That's what it's there for. So when this breaks down, you don't just have a complete meltdown. You go, oh, oh there's the contract. That says we can't actually do that. And we've all agreed because we've all signed this. So it's the safety net that supports collaborations. Tim, thank you very much for, for, uh, for the labs and for facilitating those labs. And thank you very much for that interesting conversation that we just had. My pleasure. Thank you very much. The video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners and large firms, so visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.